reason. It's like boring next, talk about something else. So there's where my Scrooge heart is a lot of times. But so if you're like me, hopefully you're not, hopefully this morning's going to help awaken us to love in a way that captures our hearts and our imaginations again. In Romans 5, verses 6 through 9, we'll read about love this morning. Use this as our launch pad for this Advent meditation. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that though we are a people at times that, that may feel, may act, may be in all kinds of ways what we might deem as unlovable, you never see us as such. Thank you that you are the God who seeks us to save us. Not so merely that we might be spared, but so that we might be your sons and daughters. That we might know your love. And today, may we know it, Holy Spirit. Show us, open our hearts to the, to the depth, the breadth, the width of the love of God. In whose name we pray. Amen. In 2011, that's been a long time ago now. Y'all probably don't remember this, but some of you might. A very prominent conservative Christian talk show host advised a caller in to tell his friend who had a spouse that had Alzheimer's that he thought it was okay for him to go ahead and get a divorce. ABC News covered this because, it, you know, the world does. This sounds like sort of a conflict of everything we've ever heard from Christians on what it means to be loved. But this particular prominent talk show host said this, I know it sounds cruel, but if he's going to do something, he should just divorce, divorce her and start over again, make sure she has custodial care and somebody to look after her, but I wouldn't put him on a guilt trip because, I mean, she's basically dead. Now, the article goes on to, to have both Christian leaders and non-believing neuroscientists talk about this and and the, the complications and problems we may have with it. Uh, one, uh, the president of a Maryland-based campaign to prevent Alzheimer's, I can't even hardly pronounce the name, Zavin Kakatorian, said that this logic could be applied to parents abandoning their newborn babies. After all, the newborn presents to the caregiver many of the same circumstances. Both the infant and the person with Alzheimer's must be fed, cleansed, they're highly emotional, sleep a lot, and if neglected, they will die. So while this situation may be complicated, and whether you agree or not, that might be some good uh, lunch conversation. I wonder if you've ever thought, will I ever become so complicated or inconvenient that I won't be loved anymore? Some of you might say, well, I've already been there, done that. In some of your stories, you've been the person who was just too much. And maybe, just maybe there are others of you in here who are kind of like I said I can be at times. Who cares? You just don't want to deal with it. 
We've talked about how peace and hope can sound, you know, just kind of cheesy on this sentimental level, and maybe it can be the same with love. But love, like hope and like peace, if we really consider it, are scary words. They're words that involve risk. To love someone is to be hurt. To love someone is to sacrifice. To love is to cost. And we have to think about God. I mean, in a sense, at the root of all love is God in every way. And we wonder, will God's love last? Because the reality is in this world, other loves may not last. But will God's love last? I'm sure there's some of you in here right now who are living lives that are entangled with some sort of maybe sort of just besetting sin, some sort of almost ritualistic, addictive type disobedience. There's others in here who have real doubts. Not just doubts about your own faith, but if you're honest, you have real doubts about God, about His existence, about His love for you. And we wonder, will the love of God last when my love for Him wanes? We wonder, does God love us just because He has to? In some of our stories, it seems that eventually everybody will leave us. We wonder, is that true about God too? Are we unlovable? Or maybe it's just better to forget about love and just live our lives. The true story of God found in the scriptures tells us that love is not just some kind of chemical reaction in our brain that we have through some sort of, you know, primitive chemistry with other people because there's some degree of compatibility or instinctual response to their physical presence. We see that in the Bible that love is not first of all a what, it's first of all a who. That God is love. We get it so backwards in our world and our thinking where we have a definition of love that then we hold God accountable to when in the true story of the world it is God who is the definition and the standard of love. But we're afraid to say that sometimes because that may scare, we think that's scary because what if God's love is not as great as my version of love? In scriptures it talks about love in a lot of different ways and People smarter than me have dissected this, like C.S. Lewis and his work on the four loves. A guy named D.R. Carson who has a great book for those of you who maybe want to think a little deeper called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. But at the heart of the scriptures is a story of a God who loves. The fancy Hebrew word for that is hesed. It is God's covenant faithful love. We often refer to that Jesus storybook Bible. I can't remember the whole phrase. is never failing, faithful love. And it, it says it way better than that. But as I think about love in a way that describes the covenant love of God, we're going to look at three ways that that covenant love is described that is not just old news or boring news, but good news for us. These are the three things we're going to walk through that we're going to see in our text. It is a love that knows... It is a love that desires or pursues or wants. And it is a love that commits. It's a love we see in Christmas. It's a love we see in the cross. It's a love we see in the presence and the coming of Christ. And if we are to live in peace and hope, where we've been so far, we have to trust in the lasting love of God. So that if you want to live a life of peace and hope in a dark, unpredictable world, 
then we have got to have a deep trust in the lasting love of God. So with all our personalities, with all our past, with all our patterns, how can we trust in the lasting love of God? First thing we see in our text, we can trust in the lasting love of God because God's love knows us and knows us at cost. Notice again verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. What do we see here? Is that God knew the worst about us. Now he knew the best about us, right? The story doesn't begin with the worst about us. It begins with us being created in his image. It begins with us being loved by him. But very quickly in this story, humanity gives God the middle finger and says, thank you very much, we'll be God. We'll do it our way. If you want to come along with us, that's great. But no more you God, us creature. The creature will become as the creator. And God knows that. He knew now, he knows us in our weakness, the text said. This is talking about our helplessness, our inability. He knows us in our hopelessness. That there's no way for us to come to him apart from his love. He knows us not only in that weakness, but notice again in the text, while we were still weak, he died for the ungodly. The ungodly, that is, we're not only helpless, but to be ungodly is we're hateful. Like, we, we give God the stiff arm. We're like Adam and Eve. We don't trust his goodness. No matter what he does for us, we eventually drift away. <laughs> That's okay. I still love you. <laughs> this is amazing. God loves us in our weakness and in our ungodliness. And so this is why it says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One commentator, Michael Bird, says this, what made the time so right was that ungodly sinners were powerless to deliver themselves and were wholly reliant on God to save us. He loved us while we were hopeless, helpless, and hateful, and he knew it. He, he didn't get in a relationship and then he's like, oh my goodness, why didn't you tell me this about you? He loved you while he already knew it. You know, it's one thing to know about somebody else being helpless and hateful. It's another thing to be in a relationship with somebody like that. That's the love of God. And that's exactly the right time we needed to be loved, and that's when he loved us. So how do we trust in the love of God? Because he knows us at cost. Your performance early on in your relationship is not what got you into the relationship. That's like that with some people, right? Like, I put my best foot forward. I presented the best version of myself, and they loved me because they didn't really know me. But the story we tell ourselves often is, if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. But the gospel says, he really knew you. Better than you knew yourself. 
whatever stupid thing, sinful thing that you've went through since you first got into that relationship with Jesus, he already knew it and he loved you while he knew it. This is amazing. What he knew about us came as a cost. It cost him to know it. It is costly to have information about people. But he knew it and he loved us. Recently I heard a story uh, in some kind of TV show or something of a, of a man who's helping this woman on a journey. And, and you imagine that it's going to be this classic story of romance, right? You know, he's willing to commit to her, to go the distance. Why? Because he's going to get to fall in love and he's going to get to enjoy all the intimacy around all of that along the way. But there's a catch. He finds out in this story what is driving her on this mission is that she has a sexually transmitted disease. Now there's some conflict. Will he continue to love her once he has that knowledge? Because we're not about to flash to some kind of scene. We're about to have to see, will someone love at that cost? However, how we may think about that, the love of God is greater. He knows the disease that we have. And he says, I love you anyway. If we're going to live a life of love, we're going to have to receive that. This is why many of us are bored with the love of God is because we somehow think, well, it's not, it doesn't really take that much to love me. And others of us, it's why we don't receive the word of God is because we think it's going to take too much to love me. But the love of God is here for us. Some of us, me and someone were talking about this last night briefly and read a whole book on this, something called imposter syndrome. Some of you may be doing that. You're stepping into your missional communities, your fight clubs, your lives, your homes, your workplace, and you're walking around with this, this, this story in your head that the real me will not ever belong. The real me will not ever really be loved. The real me will not ever matter. And the love of God comes to us saying this morning, I want you to receive that I know it all and I love you. And then he wants us to give that to other people. He wants us to receive it and give it. It's why some of us don't, don't engage in real relationships because we're so afraid of this. We don't want people to know us. Why? Because we know it's going to cost them. How many people have I heard say, I just don't want to be a burden? Guess what? We are all burdens. There's specific verses in the Bible that say to be the body of Christ is to bear one another's burdens. Is that why we sit alone at times? Is that why we don't engage? Is that why we don't pursue? Some of us are telling ourselves, all I deserve to do is just sit in the corner. 
I have nothing to offer because of all of this mess going on inside of me. But the love of God comes to free us. He knows you and He loves you. And He wants us to love other people at cost. I don't know how many times I wish that my wife would quit sharing information with me. Poor her. Why? Because I know if she tells me something, what? I might feel responsible for it. Blah, 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 blah. Ignorance is bliss. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. You know what that is? That is the Antichrist. The way of Christ is, I will, res- I will absorb the cost of knowing. You show up to family, I don't want to know who needs money. I don't want to know who needs a ride. I don't want to know who needs help. I don't want to know whose marriage is falling apart. I don't want to know who's stuck in that addiction. Because that's going to be a call to love. But that's how God's loved us. He knows it. And He loves us. Someone has once said, if, if anybody ever really knew somebody else, they wouldn't marry them. And while that may be true on an earthly level, I was thinking about this. Well, there's one big exception. The love of God. He knew it. He said, I want you. So he's our next point. We can trust in the lasting love of God because he knows us at cost. Secondly, we can trust in the lasting love of God because he desires us or pursues us or he wants us at cost. This is amazing. Love is not just knowledge of another person, which, is, which it is. It's a desire. It's a wanting. It's a pursuit. How do we see that in our text? Notice verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it moves the argument along a little bit. It's very conceivable to die for a good person, right? Lots of movies about that. You know what I mean? Like a person who you love. A person who you know really loves you. Right? You might jump out in front of a car for somebody who's became your new best friend. Or even a bus in a musical. Right? You might do that. Because that person you think, they bring a lot of good to this world. And they brought a lot of good to my life. You would, let's say it again, you might give your life for a, in our, in our words we like to use today, a life-giving person. But Jesus gave his life for the death-giving people. He pursued the people who drained. Who drained him of his blood. While we were still sinners, while we pushed God away, while we loved ourselves first, while we rebelled, while we refused Him, while we run, while we caused hurt and harm to ourselves, to others, and to creation, while we were toxic, while we made messes that we couldn't clean up and didn't care to clean up, 
God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not die for the best version of you. He did not die for you once you got yourself cleaned up. He did not die for you once you were fun to be around. He did not die for you because you were the person who could make the party better. He didn't die for you when you were in your best mood. He didn't die for you when you were in your best day. He didn't die for you once you were on the other side of that addiction. He didn't die for you once you made everybody feel good and okay. He died for you while you were still a rebel who was refusing a relationship with Him and could care less about anybody else but yourself. How can you trust His love? Because He pursued you, because He wants you, and He did it at cost. 1 Peter 2, 24, He bore your sins in His body on the tree. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He made Him who was no sin become sin so that the unrighteous might be righteous. Isaiah 53 he placed the iniquities of us all on his shoulders. Matthew, the story of Christmas. It's why his name is Jesus. Joshua, Yeshua. Because he is the one who will save his people from their sins. How do I know that the love of God won't grow cold? How do I know he won't stop pursuing me when I stop pursuing him? How do I know he's not going to stop desiring me when I stop desiring Him? How do I know He's not going to stop owning me when I stop owning Him? How do I know He's going to keep making bids for my love when I keep refusing His presence? Guess how you know He's going to keep doing it? Because he He's already done it. He's already done it at great cost. The worst is already over. He wants you. Sinclair Ferguson says, this is very important when we think about the love of God. Jesus didn't die for us so God would love us. Jesus died for us because God loves us. That's very important when we think about the love of God on the cross. I'm going to say it again. Jesus didn't die for us to twist the Father's arm so that He would start loving us. No, God demonstrated His love for us by sending the Son to die for us. John Stott says, sin is substituting ourself for God and His love is Him substituting Himself for us. He says it this way as well, we put our, sin is us putting ourselves where God deserves to be, but the love of God is God putting Himself where we deserve to be. The world at times now and even some in the church want to scoff and make a mockery of what we define as the substitution of Jesus on the cross for sinners to rescue us from the just judgment of God. But the scriptures tell us this is at the heart of the love of God. But then the world wants to go watch Harry Potter and love the substitutionary love. Right? Why is it that we have so many stories of substitutionary love 
that make so much money at the movies, but when it comes to the love of God, we rail against it. It's because this is at the very heart of what it means for us to find freedom. In a relationship that we have nothing to give, but we receive everything. To know that you are wanted and covered. Wednesday night at our family meal, Josh Gilbert's leading us through the story of God, and he put together these two story sets of Jesus' calling people to discipleship. First one was these big, you know, these big stories of Jesus' call where the dude's saying, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you, but let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Hey, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I gotta go, I'd like to go do this with my family. Anyone who turns his head back from the plow is not fit for the kingdom of God. And we were all just kind of sitting in that tension. And we even had somebody share maybe what a lot of us were thinking. Man, Jesus kind of sounds like a jerk. I mean, let, let me go to my dad's funeral and I'll catch up with you. And we were sitting in that. And sometimes that might be the only picture we have when we think about the love of God. It's just somebody else who's wanting me to do something for them and they're not going to love me unless I do it right. None of us would say that out loud, but I, I bet I've been at that point in my life where I thought, well, I didn't read my Bible enough this week, didn't share the gospel, got angry, indulged in this sin, so maybe I don't even need to step into the life of the church. Maybe I need to not even step, come to family meal, come to Sunday gathering. And if you come, you come with your head held down, right? Like, man, I've been a, been a bad boy, been a bad girl this week. But what was, what was amazing, whether Josh meant this or not, not trying to give him too much credit, Green, is guess what the next story was right after you're sitting in that? The parable of the prodigal son. The story of a son or a daughter, if that helps you, who says, Dad, I don't want you no more. I just want your stuff. Sound like the Garden of Eden? Dad, just give me the money and let me go live my life. I want to be free. And freedom is me not having to live with you. And you would think as that son hits rock bottom and comes home, that dad would be standing there with his hands crossed saying, I told you so, but that's not what we see. He sees that son coming. It's as if every day he's out there looking. Is this going to be the day that my son comes home? And as that son's rehearsing his story, you can imagine, like you walk in to your kitchen, like you walk into this gym, and you're thinking, oh, poor, pitiful, sinful me. I'm just so unlovable. I, nobody loves me. If people knew me, they wouldn't love me. You know, I'm just going to sit over here. And, you know, it's just good that I'm here, right? Just good that I'm here. As, that, as he's walking in, what's, what's the father doing? It says he starts running towards him. And he embraces him. And he kisses him. And he kills the fatted calf for him. 
Now, what if not just on your best day, but on your worst day, when you get out of bed, you saw the Father running for you? What if you walked into that fight club, to that family meal, to this gym, this Sunday gathering, and instead of thinking like God's going to have to tolerate me, and all these other people just have to tolerate me, you had a vision of the Father running towards you because He's been waiting for you. That's the gospel of the love of God. He knows you, and He just doesn't know you and love you. He knows you, and He pursues you. You've been chosen for the team. You've been invited to the party. You are in the inner circle of the triune God. You've got to receive that. To give it, you've got to receive it. You've got to be able to say, I am wanted. I am desired. You know right now, somebody's dreaming about you. love to have some more time with that person. Somebody's interested in you. Somebody cares about you. And that someone is not just anyone, it's the God of the universe. Now he wants you to do that to others. He did that at great cost. And now you're going to have to love people and it's going to cost you because you're going to have to pursue them. Love is not just knowing, oh, I know this person's in our missional community, I know this person's in my neighborhood, I know this person's in, in my workplace. What does love look like? It looks like you invite that person maybe out for coffee or to a meal at your home. It's going to cost you, right? To pursue someone means you're going to have to rearrange your schedule. To pursue someone at cost, like God loved us and we are to love others, it means you're going to have to say, I would naturally want to just do this for me, but now on this night I'm going to open my life to love this person. And it's going to cost you, right? We've got to quit trying to define love without cost. You're going to have to turn that knowledge into curiosity. I've heard somebody say recently, the heart of any sort of healthy relationship is curiosity. You want to have a better relationship with a friend, you want to have a better marriage, you want to have a better fight club, you want to have a better missional community, get curious about everybody around you. And stay curious. But know it. Curiosity will cost you because you're going to know things that now are going to call you into an action of love. The last thing, we can trust the love of God not just because it's a love that knows us at cost, a love that pursues us at cost, but lastly, commits to us at cost. So verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Paul is writing this again through the Spirit that we might have peace and we might have hope as we live in this world as people who continue to battle sin. If you read chapters 5 through 8, it's saying how can we be a people who continue to wrestle with sin and yet have hope that we're not going to be lost in the end. What Paul is saying here is because God has already loved you and justified you, declared you righteous while you were at your worst, while He knew it. 
He pursued you. He's going to protect you until the end. He is committed to you. If you do not believe that God's love is committed to you in all of the ups and downs, highs and lows, disobedience, doubts, and delights of the journey, then you will not live with the experience of the peace and hope. You will believe that the love of God, just like you will believe your peace and hope, is dependent on your performance. And if the enemy can just get you to believe that, he can rob you of the fullness of life that Jesus says he comes to give. Why do we not experience the abundant life that Jesus says he comes to give us? It's because we believe that the hope, peace, and love of God are dependent on our performance. And we fear that we're going to be left or lost in the end. That it's all just going to be hell for us or it's going to be one big hoax that we wasted our life on. But he has justified us. He has declared us to be his children, to be righteous in the highest court in all the universe. And there is no one, no satanic lawyer of our minds that can overrule that verdict. And he loves us at cost. Now I want you to go with me here. The cost has been paid at the cross. There's no greater sign of his commitment to us. But what's new that I think maybe we miss that this text is saying as it talks not just about our present but our future is that the cost continues to be paid. What do I mean by that? Not that anything needs to be added to the finished work of Christ so that we are secure. But do you remember how in the days of Noah it said that God looked down from heaven and he grieved? Do you remember when Jesus looks out over Jerusalem, what does he do? He says he weeps. Does Paul not say in Colossians chapter 2 that we are left here to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? That is, as the body of Christ suffers, there continues to be a suffering that brings this mission along until the day of consummation. You see, where we miss out on the greatness of this good news of the committed love of God is we think only of God's love as something that committed to us in the past and is committed to us in the future. But we're just left here stuck by ourselves now to go through all this crap. But is our God not the God of Noah? Is our Jesus now not still the one who weeps over our sin and over our suffering? You see, He is the one who is with us now. He's not just a God whose love is the past and a God whose love is future. He's a God whose love is present. He's here for it. You don't weep alone. You don't suffer alone. There's lots of mystery and suffering and fancy word theodicy around it. But Jesus not only willingly took on sin for himself and suffering for himself and Satan on himself at the cross to free us from it, but he walks with us now in our suffering. Where is God when you suffered? You look to the cross. Where is God now in your suffering? 
He's with you in it. He's committed to the end. His commitment is not just an event. His commitment is a relationship. His love is not just an idea. His love is our lives. There's a story of two brothers who would go visit their, their mom in the nursing home. And one of the brothers had a lot of money. And so he would come about once a year on a birthday and he would throw a big party just to blow out. All the people that worked there got to eat. He celebrated slideshows of the life and it was just a grand affair. And everybody loved him, everybody praised him. But there's the other brother who didn't have a lot to give, but he came and visited about every day. He was the one that wiped the drool from the mouth, changed the adult diapers, helped make sure care was being done properly. It's a picture of a love that was willing to know, a love that was willing to pursue, and a love that was willing to commit at cost. Maybe you think God's like the one brother who just gave you an event. But the gospel of the love of God is he is the gospel who stays with us in the mess. And he's not going anywhere. Whatever your disease, whatever your path, whatever your doubt, whatever your disobedience, God's love will last. What if we lived in that security? What if that love was the motivation for our life and our lives together and it was the measure of success? You want to know how to judge if your missional community is being successful? Are you loving people? Are you loving one another and are you loving people who are yet to know Jesus? There's our metric for success. Not showing up and saying, I hope we got a good plan. We need good plans. But the measure is love. Is your family a success? You may be thinking, wow, this is a nut show around here. I don't know how this is all going to turn out. Are we loving one another? Love is its own, its own defense. Love is success. But love will cost us. Because love knows, love desires, and love commits. But to know peace and hope, we must trust in the lasting love of God. And to that now we come to the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for your love. As we come to the table now, may we taste and see that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. May we rejoice in the fact that you know us, and yet you still want us, and you will never stop being committed to us. In Jesus' name, amen. This time, let's come to the Lord's table. Rejoice in the love of God.